Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Bill. And we're also here with a special guest tonight, Jay Jean. Good evening, Jay Jean. Hi there. And what we're going to do tonight, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. And tonight, we're actually going to do something a little bit different. This is going to be uh, an episode that kind of covers two topics. So first, Steve, he actually did some research for this episode. Oh, my iPad just died. (laughs) 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 I'm sure you'll be able to wing it. (laughs) Yeah, I I know this stuff. So finally, I know many many people in our audience have been waiting for a Steve episode. They've been clamoring for it. (laughs) They have. (laughs) So Steve, what are you going to be covering tonight? Do you want to give it away yet? Sure, I'll just say it now because I like to plant seeds, right? (laughs) (laughs) So so maybe you're thinking about it. Oh, I did not mean it in any type of way. But um, today I'll be talking about bryozoans and... I don't want to explain what that is just yet. <laughs> I was going to say. Maybe yeah. some people have heard of bryozoans, maybe some people haven't. Um, I know that I knew about bryozoans, but apparently I knew next to nothing about them. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited to kind of give a, a kind of a basic introductory episode about bryozoans. And hopefully there's lots of people out there that can tell us all the ways that you're wrong. Yeah, right, right. This is going to be one of those episodes where maybe there might be someone who knows a, a lot more than uh, me in the audience. All right. You know what? I doubt it. <laughs> it's one of those topics that there's probably not too many people. Yeah, uh, right. You have to be real niche to, <laughs> to know this stuff. Right, zones. Yeah. And let's take a moment to meet our special guest tonight, J. Jean Rose Burney, who is the Deputy Executive Director of the Western New York Land Conservancy. He's going to tell us a little bit about himself, his organization, and the site we're at tonight, which is called the College Lodge Forest. Hey there. So, so I'm Jay Jean. Uh, you know, I'm born and raised in Buffalo. Uh, I've been working at the Land Conservancy for the last seven years. A land conservancy is a land trust. So what we try to do is protect really important places, forests, wetlands, meadows. We protect a lot of farmland. We have a lot of nature preserves. So a lot of the places that we protect, we own, we have trails. You can access those places. But like most land trusts, you're pretty much dealing with private land, right? Yeah, essentially what we're doing, I mean, we we own land. You know, it's not government. We're a non-governmental agency. Um, We have private nature preserves. We do public access. Uh, you had talked about a, a tool earlier called yeah. a conservation easement. That's right. A lot of the land that we protect is through this conservation easement tool, which is essentially an agreement with a private landowner or a government that restricts what can happen on that property. You know, so a lot of our farmland is protected with conservation easements. It's still owned and operated by a farmer. They can farm it. They can sell it. They can use the land. We just make sure that it's never subdivided or developed. We have nature preserves that are owned by towns that have conservation easements on them. So it's the same thing. It can be a nature preserve. It can have trails. Town owns it, manages it, but it's protected. But we also own a lot of land. And what we're trying to do is buy a 168-acre portion of the College Lodge Forest property from the Faculty Student Association of SUNY Fredonia to protect that land as a nature preserve, already has trails, beautiful old growth forest, incredible wildlife, and then we'll own and operate it as a nature preserve as far as we can. Open to the public. Open to the public. Yeah. All right, so we're going to hear a lot more about that, about the College Lodge Forest and what Jay Jean and his group is doing here, as well as whatever Steve was able to cobble together on Brian Zellens. <laughs> but before we do that, folks, I feel like we have to stop for a moment and... Um, just take note of the date. We are recording this episode on June 17th, 2020. And as most of you are most likely aware, three week, about three weeks ago, uh, George Floyd was killed by police. Now, I know that many of us listen to podcasts as a distraction. 
And there may be some of you out there in our audience that would rather we not talk about this, but I gotta say folks, this is a time not to be distracted. Uh, this is a time to pay attention and take part in whatever way that you are able. Here on the podcast, we're always asking the questions, what does the research show? What are our personal biases? And those two questions could not apply better than to what is happening right now across the country. Um, we know what the research shows. It gets clearer every year. And even beyond that, uh, all of us have heard the stories from the countless lives that have been impacted by the systemic racism that is happening in all of the lives that have been needlessly lost. If you're looking for the place where these issues intersect with environmentalism, with natural history, I suggest reading uh, an article that recently appeared in the New Yorker by the great environmentalist and author Bill McKibben. It's called Racism, Police Violence, and the Climate Are Not Separate Issues. And from there, I cannot recommend enough the fantastic book by Harriet Washington called A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind. And we will put links to those and other resources in our episode notes. And I also want to say that I think now is a good time to not try to purposefully misunderstand what other people are trying to say. Um, so I feel like if you hear someone say Black Lives Matter, um, it, it actually doesn't make that much sense to say, actually, <laughs> all lives matter. Um, because the, We've all heard that. Yeah, it, it's, it's clearly not a response to what they're saying. And really, like many topics that we talk about on the field guides, it's really worth digging deeper uh, into what what someone means when they say that. Um, because it's, it, it's definitely not that only Black Lives Matter. Right. And, um, and also, if you hear how hard someone has it, uh, or, or that maybe there's such a thing as privilege, uh, the, the right response isn't, well, I've had it pretty tough too, or I worked really hard to get what I have, you know, because a lot of times we don't see the ways that we've been fortunate. Right. And the ways that we're fortunate that don't have anything to do with what we've done personally. Right. Yeah. And I think that, uh, and this is something that um, I try to remember on a, on a daily basis. I don't always uh, succeed with it, but um, th there's uh, an interesting little saying that the, the Green brothers, both Hank and John Green, um, the pretty famous YouTube celebrity guys uh, go by, and that is imagine other people complexly. I think very often we don't do that. We think, oh, I'm so complex, I'm so special. The world revolves around me, and we kind of shortchange a lot of the people around us. So I think it's definitely very important to take that extra time to consider what someone might have gone through that you just don't know about. And JG, and I know you wanted to say something too. Yeah, you know, this is something that, that really does matter to me and the Land Conservancy. You know, I grew up in Buffalo. My parents took me to nature preserves. Beaver Meadow, Times Beach, Tift. It's because of that, because of being able to connect myself, being able to go out in nature, touch a tree, hear a bird, splash through a creek, that I do this now as a, as a profession. You know, my career is conservation. That wouldn't be true if I didn't grow up in nature. A lot of black and brown communities and people don't feel welcome in the outdoors, in nature. Um, sometimes they face harassment. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's actual violence. And 
at the Land Conservancy and in my own life, we have to fix that. Because until everyone, until they're welcome in nature, they feel safe there, we won't be able to protect the places that matter to all of us. Right. Well said. All right, so now we have to do a hard right turn and segue <laughs> into our topic for today. Mm -hmm. So those of you that have stuck with us, thank you, folks. We appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, in all honesty, the first time you brought up what date it was, I thought that was just to throw me under the bus as to how long it's going to take me to get this episode out. <laughs> hopefully soon, <laughs> no. right? Today's the 17th, so yeah. hopefully uh, you, you guys won't be hearing this too far in the future. Right. Yeah. All right, so I think a, a good way to, to move on is to talk about just the forest that's around us, right? Sure. Yeah. So we were just uh, in the parking lot. We were standing around uh, a group of if you could envision camp buildings, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and those were, have been here for a long time. And JG, you pointed something very interesting out about the, the, the parking lot here. Yeah, so, so this College Lodge forest is on the Continental Divide. On one part of the property, when it rains, the water drains into Lake Erie, Niagara River, Lake Ontario, St. Lawrence, Atlantic Ocean. On the other side of the property, when it rains, the water drains into the Allegheny River, Mississippi River, Gulf of Mexico. Wow. And the driveway, that we were just standing on is that divide. When you look to your right, you see Lake Erie and you see a slope going that way. And you look to your left, we can't see the Mississippi River, but it slopes that way. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just pretty cool to think that like right there on either yeah. side of this you know, small little driveway, that's, that's the divide. It's a big deal. Right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of us have seen those watershed maps and you know there's the line somewhere, you yeah. know? <laughs> so it's kind of fun uh, to uh, actually be right there. So to give people an idea of where we're at, um, probably the closest major town is Fredonia. So we are about an hour southwest of Buffalo, yeah, which is kind of odd because we're usually not in that direction. Yeah, yeah, usually not in that direction. So we're like on our way to Pennsylvania. And how many miles would you say we're probably from Lake Erie? Uh, it's probably 10 miles, 10, 10 miles. 15 miles from yeah. Lake Erie. So through the trees, we could we could see the lake. But um, we're a little farther afield than we normally are. Mm -hmm. But J.G. contacted us. Um, they are in the middle of raising money. That's right. Right. Yeah. To purchase the College Lodge forest and he thought the field guides might be a good way to spread the word about it that's right yeah. so so this forest it's incredibly awesome <laughs> you know it's beautiful there's so much wildlife and so much uh, you know old growth forest beautiful wetland two years ago we started working with the current owners the faculty student association of suny fredonia to oh, try to let me stop you just for sure. a minute so folks that don't know suny stands for state university of new york yeah. so there's a whole um system of colleges across right. the state. Right. Yeah. So the FSA has owned this land since the 60s. If you go back to the 30s, the students at that college, before it was even SUNY, used their own money to buy this land to protect it, to have a place where they could go and explore nature. Um, the FSA has owned it since the 60s. Recently, they've sort of struggled to maintain it. There's a lot of trails, there's some old buildings, there's an actual historic lodge. So they thought maybe they could log the forest here to raise money to maintain the property. Fortunately, they didn't do that, and instead what they really want to do, like us, is conserve the property forever. The way they're going to do that is they're going to sell us most of the land, the forest, the wetland. Um, we're going to, with that money, they're going to reinvest back into the properties that they'll continue to own. So they'll continue to own the lodge, the driveway, sleeping facility. We'll own all the forest and the nature trails, and we'll keep it open as a publicly accessible nature reserve forever. And did you say how many acres are here? We are buying 168 acres of the 201 acres that they own. All right, so Jardine was showing us the map in the parking lot, and the FSA, they're going to keep kind of a central portion, and then the Western New York Land Conservancy is going to be purchasing the forest all around it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And we have, we, we have to raise $790,000. 
uh, we have until the end of this year. Uh, that'll let us buy the land. That'll let us uh, put money into a stewardship fund so that we can operate and maintain it forever. Um, and we have already raised about $400,000. That's great. So we're a little more than halfway to that goal, and we need help to get to the end. And hopefully anyone who's listening can help. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll put in links to the Land Conservancy and how you can donate. Mm-hmm. All right. That sounds great. Yeah, that's great. So I wanted to, to just give a little background information for the audience. If you're not familiar with a land trust, you know, Jean gave a, a quick background on the Western New York Land Conservancy. But, you know, these groups, there's, you know, about 1,400 of them across the, the country as of about 2016. I think that was the last time I looked. And through their efforts, they have conserved over 50 million acres uh, in the lower 48 states. Uh, just to put that in context, that's about twice as big as all the national parks put together. Um, I've actually, you know, in, in my work, when I used to teach a wilderness class at UB, I came across the quote that, uh, ooh, what do we got there? Yeah, maybe a, uh, well, it's a woodpecker for sure. Yeah. I think it's the... Uh, uh, there he is. The sapsucker? Yeah. yeah. They it's nest right in here, in oh, these black nice, cherries. nice. Yeah. And that is an actual name, yellow-bellied sapsucker, <laughs> for anyone who's not a birder. But um, I came across a quote that said, folks, can you hear that? That was a, what we think is a yellow-billed cuckoo. You don't hear those too often around here. I still get the, the black-billed and yellow-billed yeah. song. I have, to, I have to look it up every I time I hear it. it. We hear them so infrequently, yeah. it's hard to remember which yeah. is which. But it's a cuckoo. Uh, but I came across the quote that when it comes to conservation in the lower 48, Land trusts, like the Western New York Land Conservancy, are doing some of the most vital biodiversity conservation in the country. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. You know, I, I think we have, I, I love state parks. I love the sure. DC, I love national parks. Um, but they just have limited resources, you know. They can't do everything. And so what land trusts do is they sort of step in in a private way. Right. You know, we're, we're a not-for-profit. We're a 501c3. We're a corporation. Um, and we are trying to do something that communities want us to do, that landowners want us to do. Um, and, you know, it's been very successful. You yeah. know, essentially, we're doing things that people want. You know, we, we work in places where the landowner wants the land protected, the community wants the land protected, and we try to find a way to help them do it. Yeah, and through that tool you mentioned, the conservation easement, people can still own their property, but they can have the reassurance that through a conservation easement, it will never be developed, even if it changes hands, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. at a place like College Lodge, we'll literally own it. You right. know, so we're going to own it. There's no conservation easement. We're going to maintain it. Right. Um, but a lot of our land, actually most of what we protect, is through this conservation easement. So right. we've protected more than 7,000 acres in, in western New York, more than 90 properties, and wow. most of that's conservation easement. And so this is a tool that, you know, for example, Nature View Park, 1,200-acre park owned by the town of Amherst, we have a conservation easement on it. So we don't have to maintain the park, but we make sure that park's never turned into something else. Right. All of the farmland that we protect. Baseball we diamonds. Yeah, right. Well, we don't maintain the farms. You know, the farmer farms it. The farmer owns it. The farmer can give it to their kids, can right. sell it. Um, but he can rest easy knowing it's never going to be subdivided and turned into be, a strip mall. It's always going to be available for farm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. What so, about a ropes course? Could you turn it into one of those? Each, <laughs> each if, technically speaking, each conservation easement is written specifically for uh, that yeah. property. And so, it could yeah, be written. You can in. have a ropes course. I mean, you know, there's, each easement's different. So, yeah. Right. Got it. Got it. So, folks, I would recommend, you know, looking in your local area, looking into your local land conservancy or your local land trust. And I'll put up, um, I have a document that gives a, a great succinct explanation of what a conservation easement is because it is a powerful and often used conservation tool 
that does not, in my opinion, get enough publicity. Most people don't know what it is, yeah. but it's very powerful. It has the wrong name, too. When people think of an easement, they think of like a power line right. or you know, or even just an access easement. You know, It really should be called a conservation restriction. Right. That's what you're doing. You're, you're voluntarily giving up yeah. your right to do something on your property, and it's right. developing it. It's typically mm-hmm. what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what do you say we walk a little bit? Cool. And maybe let Steve talk? or Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless that's all we have time for. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the episode. You know, you did say that uh, maybe we wanted to describe what we're walking through right now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this kind of looks really familiar to us for the most part. Yeah. So uh, there's tons of maples everywhere. I know a little further back we, we're seeing some beaches. Um, there's a lot of rubus, uh, uh, like raspberry yep. that's growing uh, all around us. So you kind of have a filled in understory a bit. Um, I saw some herbaceous plants uh, as well. Cucumber magnolia. Cucumber hey, magnolia yeah. tree growing here. There's a lot of diversity here. You know, right now around the lodge, if you go back 100 years, you know, this was like most everywhere else farmed and logged, most mm-hmm. of the property. And so a lot of this is new growth, secondary, you know, forest. It looks pretty old at this point because you've almost got 100 years of growth. We're going to get to, you know, before this is over today, some of the old growth. There's actually 15 acres on this property that's never been cut. 400-year-old hemlocks, giant wow. black... Uh, black um cherries well sugar maples too giant beech um you know we're starting right now to get into some of the hemlock forest it's funny there's a lot of young ash I, i've been i was kind of seeing it no not this that's starts <laughs> no, yeah, well, none of this is young ash. Yeah. back there there was young ash yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we got some wild sarsaparilla folks. Sarsaparilla yeah. or sarsaparilla? What do you say? It's with an R, right? <laughs> I say sarsaparilla. <laughs> I don't know what it's, I don't know how it's supposed to be said. All right. Yeah. Okay, so um, as long as we still have some listeners left. <laughs> so this episode, I'm going to be talking about bryozoans. And actually, the, the, both Eugene and Bill, do you guys really think you know very much about bryozoans? I read the Wikipedia page. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I remember some of it. And what I remember is probably half right. So. Got it. And when the first time I encountered bryozoans was in the Adirondacks with you and Matt, Matt oh. from Indefensive Plants, we yeah. were paddling up there, and Matt pointed out this gelatinous mass in the water. Tell me that none of us thought that it was like salamander eggs or something. Well, that's what I thought it was, yeah. but Matt, Matt taught me that no, it's bryozoans. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so I'm going to make this as interesting as I can, <laughs> but sometimes when you go into a broad topic like I did, it's difficult to know if you're going to strike gold. <laughs> um, so uh, today's episode will kind of be an introduction to this group, uh, especially since I was mainly introduced to them recently myself. Um, so bryozoans are also known as moss animals, um, and the phylum bryozoa actually translates to moss animal. We'll talk about why they're called moss animals in a moment. <laughs> so are they animals? They are animals, okay. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, the, the name moss animal kind of gives a hint at some taxonomic confusion um, that I'll touch on in a little bit. But uh, the ones that I've seen don't actually look anything like moss. Um, yeah. But if you have no frame of reference for what a bryozoan is, I'll tell you how I was introduced to them. So the most common bryozoans that I see look like these gelatinous blobs that you'll find attached to sticks and other objects that are in the water. Yeah, like you said, they almost look like salamander egg masses or yeah, frog yeah. egg masses. Yeah, yeah and uh, so uh, these gelatinous blobs aren't an individual bryozoan, but the, it's actually an entire colony of tiny bryozoans. Yeah. Um, and in the case of bryozoan colonies, each individual is known as a zooid or a zooid. Oh. I think I'll go with zooid. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Chicken of the Woods mushrooms there. Ooh, that's really good. Yeah. Oh, and a rishi. Yeah. Yeah. I call it hemlock varnish mushroom. And a rishi is what you call it? Rishi. Rishi. I thought that's what that one was. Yep, that one just. Hemlock varnish and then chicken in the woods. Yeah, so we have some uh, shelf fungi coming out of old hemlock here down in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. I don't know if you hear singing above us, so this is our hermit thrush. Yeah. They nest here. And there's a beery off in the distance, too. Yeah. Atilia. What's that? Uh, uh, basswood. Basswood. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> and poison ivy. Oh, where? <laughs> right there. Nice poison ivy. I always <laughs> like finding it. So I was saying that these gelatinous masses are made of a bunch of tiny little individual bryzoans. So when I mean tiny, or when I say tiny, I mean <laughs> that they're about half of a millimeter in length each individual one. Um, and so for all the Americans listening, that's about 1 50th of an inch, uh, which still isn't a useful metric because it's too small, <laughs> really, to, to think about. Um, so really tiny is probably the best description. Um, but they're still <laughs> to, visible, to right? You would need, you would need like a, a, hand a, a, good, a good hand lens, I should say. Okay. Yeah. So bryozoa is an entire phylum of microscopic aquatic invertebrates. Uh, and this includes three classes, four orders, 187 families, 808 genera, and 5,869 species. And there's more than two or three times as many extinct species. Wow. So obviously I won't be able to cover everything or even <laughs> most of everything in this episode. So I really just want to do, like I said, just an overview and focus on the stuff that I kind of thought was interesting. So uh, the reason that I'm even interested in the first place is because I used to do fisheries re uh, research on Lake Erie and the Niagara River here in Western New York. And that's when I started noticing these strange blobs attached to sticks and reeds and other debris in the water. And most of these were, uh, you know, these blobs were about two to four inches wide. But I've also seen colonies that were almost up to a foot. Really? Yeah, Whoa. I've seen some really, really big ones. Um, and I actually, you know, I, I really didn't have any idea what these things were. So I've kind of wondered about them for a really long time. And so this is kind of my excuse <laughs> to kind of dig into this. Yeah. Hang on for a sec. So for people that have never, you know, seen them before or interested in seeing them, mm -hmm. you know, we mentioned they look like masses of salamander eggs or frog eggs, but you're yeah. going to see those amphibian masses in the spring, mm -hmm. right? But you're typically not going to see bryozoan colonies until later in the summer because it's the heat that really gets them going, right? Yeah, because they'll start out in the spring and then they'll just keep getting larger and larger. Ooh, a toad. Yeah. Uh, they'll keep getting larger and larger until the late summer and early fall. That's when people really start to notice them. Okay. So uh, it'd be good to stop here for a second. We're walking through the patch of pink lady slipper. Oh. So uh, we're about a week late. You know, two weeks ago, they were in full bloom, gorgeous pink lady slipper yeah. flowers. Um, it's an orchid. You know, it's a native orchid. Yeah. There's seven species of native orchids at the College Lodge Forest. Whoa. We've, not me personally, but some of our ecologists, Eric Danielson, John Titus, Priscilla Titus, they've found <laughs> two new species of orchids here just in the last couple months. Um, and so every year we're finding new things here. Uh, but these lady slippers are just really the star, I think, of the show because you know, it's right on a trail. There's a hundred of them here in full bloom, and there's just these gorgeous flowers. Yeah. So, folks, you may know it as the moccasin flower. Or cypripedium. Cypripedium right. acala? 
Yeah, is that showy? I think so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we are, as you said, JG, we've kind of missed the flowering window for Pink Lady Slipper, yeah. But, but the flowers are still there. They're just, they're not looking the best. The There's no out. color on them. Yeah. It seems like it lasts about two weeks. Yeah. And each year the, the timing's a little different, I think, cause, just because of the weather. You know, if you have a, we, I think we had a really warm March and then a really cold May. Yeah. And so I thought things were going to be advanced and they probably were delayed. But, you know, right. the end of uh, last week of May, first week of June, it was just pretty spectacular. Yeah. And the Lady Slippers folks, they have a, a, a pouch. Uh, the, the bloom is about an inch long and bee, they're pollinated by bees and the bees can go, go into the pouch, but then they can't get out the way they came in. So they have to exit through one exit and uh, they have to go out through a single exit. And when they do, they inadvertently pick up some pollen and or pollinate on their way out and i'd say if you come here you know they are right on a trail which is great to view them but it's also just stay on the trail because <laughs> right. they're, they're hard to see sometimes and you see you know the adults when they're flowering it's real obvious right the babies when they're not flowering <laughs> not so <laughs> not obvious. obvious yeah right. so he's pointing out a, a pair of leaves that is just a, a each leaf is just a few inches long so and, and don't dig them up because they <laughs> cannot do well usually uh, yeah. They rely so heavily on that mycorrhizal fungi. I didn't know this until I was doing some research for this episode because a few weeks ago, Steve told me he was going to do it on orchids. Mm. So, <laughs> And I thought it was, I'm so busy right now that I felt like I couldn't give orchids the time that they deserve. That's so all right. That's why I stepped away from it. I just did a little bit of reading on orchids. And I didn't realize that orchid seeds don't have food for the developing plant in them. Oh, interesting. Like most seeds do. No eliasomes or anything? So, or the eliasome is more for... The, the disperser, right? Right, right. Okay. No, but in the seed itself, you know, most seeds, if you open it up, like a lot of what that seed is composed of is food for the developing plant. Like fatty. Right. F fatty uh, resources. Orchids don't have that. They rely almost chiefly on the mycorrhizal fungi to provide them with the, the growing plant, what it needs. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, for me, you know, I've, I've done a lot of, like with, with the Land Conservancy for seven years, we've been able to protect a lot of really cool places, yeah. you know, great forests, waterfalls. For me, when a place has an orchid, it just it's just so oh, yeah. much cooler. And to have seven orchids, <laughs> you know, pretty cool orchids, yeah. it's just, it's just it's, this is such a spectacular place. Right. And mm -hmm. JG and I were talking because uh, there are some orchids here that he was actually wondering, should we talk about them? Because yeah. do we want to draw people here? Because unfortunately, poaching is a problem because orchids are such spectacular wildflowers yeah, yeah. yeah. so i intentionally don't know where the other six species are. <laughs> he told me mouth. he intentionally doesn't know yeah because you have a big mouth that was great <laughs> all right so let's get back to bryce owens i'm sure that's just as exciting <laughs> yeah but i will say it's still pretty nice to see a lot of these species like we're seeing like indian cucumber root we're walking across a, a boardwalk here through a wet area and coming up Around, under, through the boardwalk, we have giant skunk cabbage leaves. Oh, yeah. We have bone set, um, not flowering yet, but coming up. Oh, there's some poison ivy. We have cinnamon fern. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sending up its fertile fronds. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, this whole place is beautiful. I love how filled in it is. Yeah. Now, did the college, in any of the, the history of the site, did they do any kind of plant surveys or uh, you know, record what's here? Not really. I mean, so there's been a lot of research here, actually. Okay. Um, so it has been part of, you know, the SUNY Fredonia College for a long time. So hundreds of, uh, you know, students come up here every year. John Titus brings them to do research and, 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 and you know, just, uh, you know, classes. Um, so John and Priscilla have a ton of research. Uh, birders have done a lot of research on the birds that are here. 
uh, you know, Roger Tory, Peter, Roger Tory Peterson Institute has done some research here. So there's actually, you know, there's more research about what's here than I've seen at any other place that I've ever tried to protect. Okay. Um, and so there's, there's, you know, I'm not going to remember the numbers off the top of my sure, head, sure. but something like 400 species of, of plants, 170 species of birds. And, and what you get here is you get a lot of birds that migrate through because if, you know, we're, we're close to the lake. So songbirds, warblers migrate through in the spring and fall. A lot of birds nest here too, you know. So we pointed out the hermit thrush earlier. I mean, this is a bird that nests in the Appalachian Mountains in boreal forest, you know, right. and it nests here. Uh, you get Louisiana water thrush nest here, which is more of a southern warbler that nests in streams, and you get the northern water thrush that nests here, which is like a northern boreal forest right. bog nester. So it's, it's sort of overlap. like in the middle yeah. of these ranges of, of and, and each of these birds, you know, very unique, rare, declining habitats, old growth forest bogs right you know a place that has bryozoan in a wetland um and it's just it's a, and a, you know fungus dragonflies there's there's lists of all these things so this place is a gem yeah okay so the last thing that i was saying about bryozoans is how i was introduced to them and how i knew them before doing the research so i want to make an important note here that most bryozoans are not like what i'm used to seeing uh, most bryozoans aren't gelatinous. Uh, they have exoskeletons with varying hardness depending on the species. Um, and, uh, and specifically what I was seeing is these freshwater bryozoans, uh, they actually have exoskeletons that are gelatinous. Um, really? Uh, some of them oh, are chitinous, uh, kind of like um, the shells of insects, so they are a little bit harder. But these gelatinous exoskeletons uh, can form these colonies um, that are much more rounded and jelly-like um, than usually what most other bryozoan species will be. Um, we even have some that, uh, that are freshwater that can resemble things like antlers or mosses. Right. And notice I said mosses. This is kind of where that moss animal comes from. Um, they also have these other forms where they can grow across rocks or create these furry looking colonies. Uh, now these are, they're all aquatic. I was just gonna say. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they, they can have all these different growth forms. And yeah, I, th th that was a big surprise to me. I just assumed they were all gonna be like these yeah. jelly blobs that I was used to. Are they just freshwater or are there marine ones too? They're all, most of them are marine. Oh. There's only one uh, order that's freshwater. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm not 100% sure, but I think the species that I've been seeing, uh, that gelatinous ball, is Pectinatella magnifica. Uh, but regardless, there's only about 20 freshwater species that occur in North America. Um, most live in calm waters, um, and they form in the spring, like we were saying. They reach the largest size in summer and fall, and that's when most, that's when we would notice them. People like me would notice them, and then they die off in the winter. But I kind of want to take a, a little bit of a break here, because um, I kind of want to get into the taxonomic issues that I was talking about before. Uh -oh. So, yeah, well, so to begin with, um, until about the mid 18th century, bryozoans were grouped with plants, <laughs> which I think it's funny because <laughs> plants seem to be this like catch all term yeah. for like weird species, like fungi were in there. Hydroids, like a life stage of a jellyfish relative, uh, was considered a plant at one point. Corals were considered a plant at one point. If it didn't look like a mammal, fish or a bird or an insect. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> But it's also, I think it's I think it's also good to kind of step back and realize how crazy it is that bryozoans are animals in the first place. Right. <laughs> they seem so weird. And I don't really blame naturalists and taxonomists in the past for getting it wrong because really, like today we use a lot of um, genetic techniques and genetic markers and whatnot to, to figure out these relationships. And that's a really, really hard thing to get out of um, 
morphological features. Think about coral. I still like have to remind myself those are animals. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're going to get to this. I don't want to steal your thunder. Yeah. But so we've been calling the Bryozoan like for the first year. I'm a fundraiser, right? So I'm always trying to figure out what's the hook, what's yeah. the angle. Sure. Yeah. You know? right. So we were Bryozoan Bry- ale. Bryozoan. So we were like moss animals. It really wasn't working. So mm-hmm. we started doing some more research, and a lot of people are, you know, say that, and I think this is true. You maybe correct me if I'm wrong. Hmm. They're related to coral, and and so you should say yes. And <laughs> so we've been calling them essentially somewhat like freshwater coral. Oh. And again, I'm a fundraiser. Yeah. So that that helps. Got it. Because <laughs> people can wrap their brain freshwater around Freshwater coral them. is yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah. Even if awesome. it's a gelatinous blob. <laughs> I, I'll get to coral in a minute because I do get into that. You didn't really step on my toes all that much there. Okay. <laughs> I, I just picture you taking a funder out here and saying, look, there's the Bryozone. And they're like, where, What's behind that, that blob? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so glad you brought up the coral because I will come back to that. So um, I just want to add that for any of you natural history people out there, I think the first publication to actually consider them animals was John Ellis's Natural History of the Carolines. Um, And that was in 1755. And then three years later, Linnaeus used the term zoophyte to group bryozoans and hydroids, which is also wrong, but it it was closer anyway. It was less wrong. Yeah, it was less wrong, right. (laughs) So I kind of want to describe what we're actually looking at when we see these bryozoans because for the most part they're so small that you're really not going to be able to see very much of their anatomy and i'm not really going to get into it very much but i'll just point out the the interesting bits the things that make them what they are i guess so um the body plan of these animals is a bit different from humans so let's just start there (laughs) (laughs) we share a common ancestor with bryozoans that probably existed about 700 million years ago Uh, and that was way back when life was just evolving in the sea there was multicellular life that was just beginning to emerge um, way back way before even pangaea the supercontinent existed it was actually uh, a few supercontinents back before the (laughs) onset of the long-lasting global glaciations uh, sometimes referred to as like the snowball earths if you've heard that before this was even before that. Um, So you could think about that time span, 700 million years, and uh, they've had a really, really long time for the bryozoan evolutionary path to diverge from the the human being evolutionary (laughs) path. (laughs) But it it was, uh, you know, it was very long time ago. So bryozoans are relatively common fossils uh, that first appeared in Cambrian rocks. So that was about anywhere up to about 550 million years ago. But uh, an important note with that is that uh, we were just talking about soft-bodied bryozoans, right, that that have this gel-like exoskeleton. You could imagine that uh, anything that maybe came before that that may have had one of these soft-type bodies um, wouldn't have really left fossil evidence. So that's more of a reason to believe our genomic estimates of of the time uh, that we think that they first popped up but they are pretty common fossils like i was saying so uh, an example of a fossilized form of a bryozoan would probably look lacy or even screw like Um, and and you'll see these uh, you know in rocks if you look long enough you'll start coming across bryozoan fossils um, so an, another thing with uh, bringing it back to human beings so human beings and bryozoans are both in the taxonomic clade called bilateria And this just means their body plans have a bilateral symmetry, so the left and right sides mirror each other. Um, Specifically, that's during the embryonic stage of development, but most also retain that symmetry as adults. An easy exception here would be starfish. They have a radial symmetry. Sea stars. 
Sea stars. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, echinoderms, right? So, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are other things that define um, bilaterians. They have a, like a complete digestive tract. They have a head and a tail and a back and a belly. But uh, I don't really want to focus on that. Um, as it turns out, most animals that you'd think of fall into this category. And the most well-known groups that aren't included would be like sponges and jellyfish. So I look looking into the evolutionary history of the species that I'm interested in. So I wanted to see which popular groups are most closely related with bryozoans. So what I mean by that is which groups share a most recent common ancestor with bryozoans. Um, and tracing back to phylogeny, uh, it seems like brachiopods are very closely related to bryozoans. So these guys look a lot like clams. Okay. So clams have kind of like a side-to-side symmetry, uh, um, whereas uh, uh, brachiopods are kind of like they have a top and a bottom, sort of. You've probably seen a lot of um, fossilized uh, brachiopods. Sure. Yeah. So the next closest group is actually ribbon worms, which, yeah, right? (laughs) So it goes brachiopods are kind of like their sister group, and then ribbon worms is the next one out, followed by mollusks. So this actually includes, well, actual clams, uh, but also snails, squids, and octopuses. Um, And then after that, it's annelids. So that's like earthworms and leeches. Um, And that's as far back as I'm going to go because uh, we've kind of gotten to the point where now we're looking at the Lophotrochozoa. And the reason I want to stop at this group is because they all have something called lophophores. And this is actually really important to the bryozoan. Um, and since it's in the name lophotrochozoa, lophophores, uh, I kind of want to explain what that is. So a lophophore is like the ciliated crown of tentacles that's surrounding a mouth of an organism. In the case of bryozoans, uh, they actually have a retractable lophophore. So they can actually um, have the lophophore come out of their body and then they can suck it back in if they need to. Um, so it's not always just exposed to the elements. So what they use this for is that they sieve uh, food particles out of the water. Uh, this would be like diatoms and, and unicellular algae. And uh, actually the movement of the cilia actually create a bit of a current that directs particles um, into the lophophore and then down towards their mouth. So uh, I thought that was actually kind of a... It's an interesting thing that, the, that a lot of the group does, but it is something that's very specific to bryzones as well. I can um, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. So do you want to keep walking, and then yeah. I could I could talk about it a little bit more. Let's keep walking. Yeah, sure. What? Oh yeah, this is amazing. So folks, we're we're on the edge of the forest here. We're just looking out on man several acres of wetland, but it's all covered with what is that out there? Great blue heron. There's a great no. blue heron flying by. It's covered sure. with great blue heron. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what's the lily? It's a bright. It's a yellow cup flower. What um, is that called? Sorry, hold on a second. Spatterdock. Spatterdock. New far. Yeah. So covered by spatterdock. Yeah. You can just place that right in. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. This is actually, it's hard to tell from here, but this is a beaver pond. Oh, really? So, you know, we, we've come out here, taken some video, used a drone. Uh, on that side, there's, there's just, you know, several hundred foot long beaver dam wow. that keeps this keeps this flooded. And as far as anyone can remember, it's been a pond. You know, I know some beaver ponds, they come and go, they yeah. flood, they, they break, but no one's ever seen this break, which is fortunate because I don't know if you can have bryozoan in the mud flat. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but it's a pretty spectacular beaver wow. pond. It's pretty massive. How, how big do you think this little, jeez, uh, yeah. how big do you think this is? Because I, I use the word little by mistake, but <laughs> you've probably got, um, I'm guessing, you know, 15, 20 Wow. 30 acres maybe of pond you know i've, I've never measured the pond itself but it just know. keeps going yeah wow and you can't even see the end of it it seems like it kind of keeps going back there oh for sure yeah 
Wow. Yeah, and there's a couple little islands in the middle. Um, it's not a place where you could easily kayak because there's just so much, so much vegetation in the pond. Right. Yeah. But um, you know, there's so much here too. We were here the other day, and actually, there's one right there right now. So on that log, uh, it seems like every time I come here at dusk or whatever, what is it, late afternoon, mm -hmm. there's a giant snapping turtle. Wow. <laughs> you know, a couple painted turtles next to it. Hear um, the bullfrogs singing. Yeah, you can hear the green frogs. Red winged blackbirds. Cedar waxwinds flying over right now oh, from yeah. one side of the pond to the other. Wow. There's the bullfrog. Yeah. Wow, this is a great place. And it didn't take long to get here. No. I feel like when we were even going very slow, mm -hmm. or, or relatively mm -hmm. slow, and we got here pretty quick. There are about four and a half miles of trails already on the property. Okay. You know, so that's that's good for us because you know a lot of times we'll have to build a new walking trail system. Right. Mm -hmm. Here it, it comes with the property, and, and um, there's a lot of volunteers, a lot of people, Boy Scouts, you know, Fredonia faculty that help maintain this land. And it's just such a special place for so many people. Generations of people have come here, have learned here. Sure. Artists, poets, poets, biologists, <laughs> you know, scouts, girl, girl and Boy Scouts. Yeah. Um, I mean, this place means so much to so many people. And if you guys get it, you can keep it going. That's right. Yeah. When we get it. <laughs> when you get it. <laughs> so is this where the Bryozoans would be? It would. Yeah, exactly. It's in this uh, in this pond. You know, I've never seen them myself. I've seen the photos. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. I think you have to get out in there. You probably have to, you know, have Put some, some gum leaf boots on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is this a good spot to talk about gum leaf boots? Yeah, why don't we talk about gum leaf boots? <laughs> That's a perfect segue, <laughs> unplanned. <laughs> so we want to take a moment to recognize the sponsor of this episode, Gum Leaf Boots. They have been sponsoring the field guides for quite a while now, and Steve and I do have to say that we each have a pair, and we use them for everything from herping to birding early in the morning, keeping off ticks, walking through creeks, uh, they are made of 85% natural rubber, so that means they're going to last a lot longer um, for boots that might be a little less expensive, but these are high quality. Mm -hmm. And Gumleaf is kind enough to offer free shipping to anyone who is a patron of the podcast. So we will have links to the website gumleafusa.com, as well as the offer code in our episode notes. So thank you, Gumleaf USA. Oh, it's too, this is too relaxing of a spot to keep on going with the podcast. <laughs> this is such a good spot. All right, guys, so what do you want to do? Do you want to stay here at the wetland? Do you want to walk to the old growth? I want to see the old growth. Yeah, I say old growth. Yeah, because I, I, I just want to point out to the audience that even though we're talking about bryozoans, if you were listening, then you know that we're not going to see them at this time of the year. Yeah. It's highly unlikely anyway. And I kind of like this idea for episodes. It's just a happy accident that it's actually working out this way, more of like a self-fulfilling prophecy than anything else. But I like telling you guys about stuff that you could see very shortly. Right. You know, maybe in the next uh, couple months. Well, that's uh, true. You'll be seeing Bryzones and you'll know everything about them, you know? Because so, this uh, episode will come out in a week or two, hopefully, and then yeah. it'll soon be Bryzone time. And remember, it's the 17th <laughs> when we record this. So. <laughs> and then it'll be everywhere and easy to find. <laughs> 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 Have, so, you, JG, you said you have not seen Bryozoans before. No, I have not. Okay. You know, I think you have to really go, go searching for them in the, in the wetland. So. Yeah, but have you yeah. seen them anywhere else besides here? I ha yes, yes. Oh, I've you seen have. them in, you know, in ponds. I don't think I knew what they were when I saw them. Like sure. you said yeah. earlier, I thought they were like salamander eggs. Right. <laughs> but I, have, I have seen them. Okay. Now that I've started working at you know, College Lodge, seeing photos of them, I, I've seen that before. Right. All right. All right, so I want to describe the size of these colonies a little bit better. So most bryozoans inhabit shallower water, like where I was finding them in these shallow wetlands. But some of them have been found at depths of um, 8,200 meters 
Um, and, and that's about five miles uh, below sea level. Um, so at one end of the spectrum, they hang can on, just, hang on. Yeah, a hundred meters is five miles. No, I said eighty-two hundred meters. Oh, <laughs> did you think you said eighty to one hundred? I don't know which side to pick. I, I heard him right. <laughs> okay, okay. Right. okay. Wait a second. So you were on my side, yeah. but you still didn't team, know right? who to pick. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So eighty-two hundred meters, or about five miles, All right. uh, below the surface of the ocean. So. At one end of the spectrum, there can just be a single individual, or maybe even just a few individuals, less than a millimeter in height, living between particles of sand in the ocean. <laughs> so that's one, that's one end of it. Um, and then you have colonies that are hanging from, uh, you know, like harbor uh, pilings that are over a foot and a half in diameter. So uh, these things, there's a big range as to what these colonies can look like. I guess from anything from a single individual yeah. um, to these huge, you know, like half meter. Foot and a half. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, groupings of them, or these colonies of them. Like I was saying before, gelatinous blob colonies aren't the only growth form that bryozoan species can form. So some species can form a gelatinous cylinder instead of a gelatinous <laughs> blob. So that's only slightly different. Um, but some species can form like a crust, but these only spread a few square centimeters. Other species form erect colonies, uh, and these would only probably rise about two to five centimeters, uh, though others can grow more than 15 inches. That's uh, about half a foot. Some are free-living disks, right? So not blobs, they're more flat. Other species are tufted with flat leaf-like fronds or whorls of slender branches. Wow. These guys actually look a lot like some species of lichens, but there's a lot more overlap with them. And they, they still, it sounds a lot like coral. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and this is actually what I'm getting into right now, is that these last group of colonies have like a horny texture from this lightly calcified zoid walls. Other colonies are hard with strongly calcified skeletons. Uh, these hardened colonies can form uh, rough surface patches, um, or they may rise in these slender branching twigs that can even form a network in some species. Uh, an example of this would be lace corals in the genus Reteporella. Um, these colonies, uh, the, you know, they can usually be white or pale, but some are orange, red, brown, blue, or violet. Um, and the color is actually in the living zooid or its exoskeletal case. Um, and I have a feeling that, kind of like what we were saying before, is that I have a feeling I've seen pictures of bryozoans, and I thought that they were these showy corals. <laughs> because when I was looking at pictures of them, I think sometimes they grow with corals, because they do like these sort of shallow uh, sure. um, marine environments. Like and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it kind of looks like they could grow sometimes side by side with corals. They'll also be found in a lot of other places too, and often they'll be very small as well. So maybe... Even if they were growing with corals, you're going to notice the corals because they're much bigger. Um, but corals are something that they can compete with in some environments. So um, I think certainly we've probably seen them and just said, ah, that's a coral. A coral. <laughs> yeah. Corals instead, get all the credit. Yeah, yeah. Instead of yeah. just a totally different animal altogether. Yeah. So it's settled then. Coral, right? We'll say coral. You can call them that. <laughs> they're okay. corals, yeah. You know what? It's a common name, so whatever. I'm that's fine right. with it. Team coral. <laughs> Team coral. <laughs> okay, so... In terms of how uh, individual these zooids are in the colonies, um, neighboring zooids are firmly joined, and they can actually communicate through pores in the dividing wall between the two zooids. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're individuals, but they're also connected with each other. Okay. So it's kind of interesting. So these pores uh, that, that kind of are connecting the, the individual zooids, um, it actually allows for the feeding zooids 
to pass nutrients to non-feeding zooids. So they, even though they're individuals, sometimes they are, I shouldn't say sometimes, often they are working together um, oh. as a collective unit. It also allows for, uh, let's say, one zooid, let's say one is disturbed, um, nearby zooids would also react to the potential danger. So, for example, let's say uh, one is slightly dis- disturbed and it pulls its lophophore in, other ones that were not disturbed will also pull it in because they've communicated um, through these these pores. There's wow. probably chemical signing, signaling sure. or something. Yeah. Yeah, so, the, so they can help each other uh, react to potential danger. Um, so each zooid is enclosed uh, in a secreted exoskeletal case. Um, and this is called the zoecium. Um, and I'm not going to repeat a lot of these words very much, but uh, just in case, we always try to do it for the people that do know the, this stuff a little bit better, uh, better than us usually. But, uh, but I'll try to keep the... Uh, terminology the terminology to a minimum so speaking of keeping it to a minimum i'm going to try to paint a picture right and and uh and just hear me out before you laugh at me so picture each zooid as a bar of soap okay (laughs) this was the closest thing i could describe the shape to Uh, just a just a a bunch of bar of soaps that are positioned side to side and end to end in a flat plane got it this is very close to what the bryozoans look like in this colony, let's say on, on a surface anyway. Um, kind of like plant cells in the epidermal layer of a leaf. That's kind of how they're all positioned. So let me stop you for a sec. Yeah. Am I picturing, when you talk about the lophophores, am I picturing like a hydra with the tentacles yes. coming out of the top? That's precisely what it is. So okay. I, I kind of described it as a crown of cilia before. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like if you hold your fingers up in the air and kind of make them into a tube of, yeah. of, of fingers. I don't know if that doesn't <laughs> sound right at all. But um, but yeah, it's like this, this cilia, this, uh, the, what did you call it again? A hydra. Yeah, like a hydra. Yeah. yeah. Hydra works. Freshwater coral works. <laughs> tube of fingers. Tube of fingers <laughs> no. is perfect, actually. And it's <laughs> what I want everyone to use from now on. <laughs> um. I just said the, the low four can retract back into the body. Mm-hmm. Now, there is an order of bryozoans that actually have something called an operculum. Do you know what an operculum is? No, Maybe, but it sounds familiar. It, uh, freshwater snails have them. Okay. They kind of close off the snail shell. It's sort of like a hatch that can close off the opening uh, that, that the lophophore comes out of. So it's almost like, it, do you ever see the... Um, the video of like a, a tarantula that's hiding under like a little trap door yeah. and then you, you poke it with a stick and the tarantula comes out. That's like what it is, but it's not a tarantula. It's the lophophore <laughs> that would come out, but it can retreat back in and that cover will kind of protect it from whatever is in its environment. Okay. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting because I've only ever heard of um, operculums with, uh, snails. with with aquatic snails. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I also want to say that even though a colony is all made up of individuals of the same species, Colonies can be comprised of one or more types of bryozoans. So the same species can have different kind of forms for each individual. Um, it's not always the case, but it can be the case. And, and these will have different structures and functions in the colony. So the zoids that can feed um, have a lophophore. That, uh, the lophophore obviously moves food towards the mouth. Um, the food enters the digestive tract and then terminates at the anus. And the, the reason I'm even bringing this up is because they kind of have an interesting body plan where the anus actually loops all the way back around and it comes out right near the mouth. So it's just outside of that ring of cilia. Um, but it, if you think about it, it kind of has to be that way because you can't be 
you can't be disposing of your waste inside the colony, right? That's true. It has to come in from the outside <laughs> and then go back out the outside. So they're kind of like these sort of C, this is a really simplified version, but it's kind of a C-shaped digestive tract. So it comes in one end and then it comes right back out very close to the end it came in. Okay. So they got to be careful what they're grabbing for? <laughs> <laughs> it's outside of the ring. Okay. Uh, so so uh, I don't think it'll get sucked back in. <laughs> Um, Actually, uh, an old name for bryozoans was ectoprocta, which actually means outside Outside. anus, which is referring to that. Ah. Yep. Isn't that what we have? An outside. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us who are really good at uh, yoga (laughs) can bend like that, I guess. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Kate. Trying to raise money. I think we can can move a little bit more. I I know how people like uh, kind of the noise of us moving through the forest. Um, But I'm going to kind of try to keep going, and then you guys can stop me if you hear something interesting or see something interesting. Sure. All right, so I kind of want to talk about how a colony is formed in the first place. Because obviously we had alluded to before that this time of the year, they're probably already started out. They're probably growing. Um, and, you know, eventually they'll be a lot more easy to notice. But I kind of want to talk about that growing process. So there is a founding zooid. And this is a zooid that it's formed by the metamorphosis of a sexually produced larva called the ancestrula. So like ancestor, yeah. it's kind of got that, that root to it. This founding zooid is frequently smaller and or morphologically different than the budded uh, zooids um, that it's going to produce. They also have an external exoskeleton, like I was saying before, um, and depending on the species, it can be thin or thick. But in bryozoans, similar to hydroids and corals, the progeny zooids that are produced by asexual budding almost invariably remain in intimate contact uh, with that founding zooid. Um, And this is kind of how the colony starts. So it buds off, but it doesn't detach when it buds off, if you can imagine that. Okay. And and what I was saying before is that in order to picture this, that founding zooid often looks a little bit different than the buds that it it produces. Mm -hmm. So now we kind of have an idea of how it grows. You have this founding zooid that's produced through sexual means. It lands somewhere. It goes through this metamorphosis. And then it starts budding off a bunch of asexual copies of itself that have a slightly different form than it and it just they just keep budding off um, over and over and over again and that's how they're growing this is an asexual growth um, of this colony so the colony itself is usually um, immovable and attached to some type of substrate so this can be rocks wood shells kelp seaweed uh, pilings algae other animals etc it can be really anything that's floating in the water the growth and budding zones of the colony are found at its outer edges. Remember, it's not always a ball that's growing. Sometimes it's more coral-like, so it's going to be growing from those edges, getting longer and longer, essentially. Um, the colony has, usually doesn't have any type of defined shape. It can grow in any direction, and um, it can be partially destroyed without really harming the rest of the colony. Uh, it can live for a few months or a couple of years, um, and theoretically, uh, they might uh, be immortal <laughs> until, you know, some catastrophe comes and ends its... The colony continu- or the individuals? The colony, okay. not the individual, yeah. Right. And did you, and mm-hmm. forgive me if, if you mentioned it and I just missed it, did you say where that initial zoid comes from? I'm going to get to it. I started with when it lands. I'm going to backtrack to there eventually. Okay. Right. Yeah. So some groups of uh, bryozoans can actually form colonies where the zooids at the edge detach at these special fracturing zones and can actually grow into new colonies. So it's not always that, like, 
sexual, uh, sexually produced zooid that is the colony founder. You can have this, these uh, asexual clones that kind of branch Break off, off. And, and kind of do their own thing. Most bryozoans are sessile and immobile, but there are a few colonies that are able to slowly move around. Um, and there is also a few species of non-colonial bryozoans that live, uh, I brought this up before a little bit, they, they kind of live and uh, move about in the spaces between sand grains. And uh, there's even one species that is able to live floating in the Antarctic Ocean. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and yeah. this last bit kind of blew my mind. So there are a few colonies that are mobile, and you can actually see, what's actually been seen is these golf ball-sized colonies that have been observed swimming freely um, using their feeding currents. So remember those currents I said where they can suck food in? Yeah. Those same currents apparently can, there's enough of them going on where they can actually propel it through the water a little bit. Whoa. You can't imagine it going fast like a jet right. boat, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's kind of, it's unclear whether this is a normal mode of dispersal or whether these colonies had been like forcefully detached from their substrate. So it could just be a mistake that they're traveling like this. They don't want to but, be traveling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I just thought that was super interesting that, yeah. <laughs> that there's these, uh, these uh, uh, bryozoans that are motoring around. Screaming for help. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we're close to the old growth now, right? Yeah, 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 right around the corner. All Walk right. up a hill. Right and there. then you told us that the last time or one of the times you were here, you did some pishing. That's right. All yeah, right, so, so I don't know if we've ever talked about that before, have we? I don't think so. No, so no. tell people what that is. For what those is who don't... pishing? Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, some crazy people that really like birds <laughs> that make this really awkward sound. Yeah. It uh -huh. doesn't resemble any bird sound, but the birds freak out about it, <laughs> and they come right, and basically it attracts birds to you. Right. You know, I don't do it often because I don't really want to disturb the birds, but sometimes I do it. I'm trying to figure out what's there, what's singing. I can't do it to land in front of me. It's easier to figure out what it is. It's an old and, birding trick. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, hopefully it works. I was here a week ago and uh, did a little fishing in the old growth and mm. had some hermit thrushes land right next to us, magnolia warbler. Um, I was calling a hooded warbler. <laughs> the hooded warbler didn't care. But the hermit <laughs> thrushes came out of nowhere and nice. in front of us. So right. it might happen again. Okay. Cool. Let's give it a try. It would be kind of fun to know who came up with pishing. Like, who was that first obnoxious yeah. guy in the woods that everyone hated? <laughs> they had a gold mine that he was just sitting on. And usually what happens with pishing is that um, if I do it by myself, it works perfectly. Of course. Mm. I have a group, people that really don't know much about birds, but you're like, I'm trying to show them really, you know, something really cool. Uh -huh. doesn't work at all. Nope. I just look stupid. <laughs> I'm, I'm screaming at the tree and nothing happens. <laughs> I'm also wondering if usually more people means louder. And That's uh, true. Yeah. There's all sorts of reasons. I think. If you get 20 people, the birds probably know that it's, you know, 20 people. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like if this was just you, you probably wouldn't have been saying anything getting up to this spot. That's right. that's I'm right. sure that's a, that's a factor. That's right. Well, what's cool right now, we're walking up a hill um, and we're going into the old growth. So you might have already seen, we just walked by a massive beach. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Still alive, but very old. You know, I see some people carve into beech trees and... This one someone carved into in 1952, and so it must have been a big tree in 1952. Oh, wow. But there's a, you know, still alive. Right. And then a little bit off to the right, sloping down the hill, we're starting to see some of the hemlocks. And, um, you know, usually when I see hemlocks in a forest, I mean, hemlocks are beautiful, but you know, you get, you know, foot around, you know, maybe 50, 60 feet, feet tall. You know, these are easily 100 foot tall. Oh, yeah. And, um, they, they think that some of these are close to 400-year-old hemlocks. Wow. Is this the area that said had never been logged as yeah, far as you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is definitely the old growth. Wow. Yeah. We have a hemlock episode. I almost forgot. We do? Yeah. 
Did we have a hemlock and a Willie Adelgid episode? You know, it would have been smarter to do a Willie Adelgid episode, <laughs> but we did a hemlock episode, I think. <laughs> so I figured this could be a good place to, to pish and see what happens. Cool. If you guys want to do it. Yep. Yeah. All right, so JG is going to demonstrate pishing for us. Let's hide behind the trees. Okay. Part of, the, part of the thing is, too, you birds see you, so obviously they're not going not gonna to come out and they don't want to know what you are there, you know. <laughs> All yeah, right, I'm, I'm glad that Eugene's doing it though, because last episode Bill and I did embarrass ourselves making animal noise. Right. And uh, if we don't see anything, just play along. <laughs> I'll, I'll describe what we're seeing. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. You know, it didn't sit still very long. Mm -hmm. And so this is probably the same hermit thrush that heard me a week ago. And so it probably knows a little bit better this time. <laughs> There's nothing here. Yeah. But it did react. It yeah. did, you know, fly down to us. But do you see it? I think it landed maybe 10 feet off the ground in that uh, hemlock there. Yeah, we can see it moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a hermit thrush. So it's not too far away. You know, it's not a bird that I, I, I see during migration a lot, mm -hmm. but there aren't that many places in our area where they nest. You really right. have to get into, like, the Allegheny, Alleghenies, mm -hmm. you know, so this is probably one of the further north places in western Europe that you can get our Yeah, because typically we're hearing veery or wood thrush. Yeah, yeah. wood mm -hmm. thrush is much more common for, yeah. you know, big forest birds, but, you know, veery, wood thrush. Mm -hmm. um, so that's pretty cool. And right above us right now, I don't know if the microphone caught that, but a black-throated green warbler. Nice. Um, you know, we're hearing a red-eyed vireo singing in the distance. There so was folks, just listen, the black-throated green just called. It sounds like trees, trees, murmuring trees. There it is. That's it. <laughs> so I say, z, 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 z. <laughs> What's really cool about this spot, you know, it's, it's if you were, you're not here, but like, we're standing underneath these towering hemlocks. Mm -hmm. um, they're just these straight tall trees the light from the sun you know it's kind of sunset already and the light's just sort of glimmering through the leaves on these hemlocks and you look up and it's just got these beautiful crowns yeah. it's like a cathedral yeah it's yeah. amazing and the the bird songs you know they're all around us all these birds are nesting here you can just hear it everywhere veeries hermit thrush black-throated green um some birds I can't even recognize you know there's a <laughs> magnolia warbler when it sings I don't know what it is and it's probably we've probably heard it a couple times Man, I think, I don't know if I left it in the edit, but I said earlier that it was too relaxing to go on, to go on with the podcast back at the wetland. But even this is just so relaxing. Yeah. I feel like this is a much lower energy episode <laughs> for a number of different reasons, but it's just such a relaxing one. It's hard to be like, hey, guys, check out this. You know? Definitely a place worth saving. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it's, just, it's hard to find old growth. You know, there are yeah. places in Western New York, I think if you go to Zor Valley, Beaver mm -hmm. Meadow has a little bit of old growth, mm -hmm. place that we're trying to protect, we're, we're, we're going to buy soon, Mossy Point. Oh, you know, cool. Up near Easterboro has a little bit of old growth, but not 15 acres, you know, and, and um, I think, you know, or the statistic, 100 years ago, more than 90% of New York State was, was cut, was deforested, mostly agriculture, and so there's just, and there's just very few places like this left. Yeah. And, um, I mean, the threat with this place is that you know, the FSA, the current owners, you know, they want to protect it. 
but this is it's an expensive place to run and you know with everything that's going on right now you know state budgets are not going to grow and so we really don't have that much time to raise the rest of the money to be able to buy this land and you know we'll we'll be able to protect it we'll keep it open we'll keep it as a forest and um yeah we'll keep it here yeah well i'm hoping that a listener out there can Drop a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's or naming rights. One of those islands. <laughs> oh, really? Yours. There's naming rights? There are naming rights. All right. Well, there you cool. go, folks. Yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to go up to, when we get back to the car, I'll read them off for everybody. So okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Sounds good. Actually, you can name one of the old growth grows after yourself or a lot of owners. Well, I want to name, I want to rename Leopold uh, Fleck <laughs> Trail Leopold or whatever. Fleck Trail. Le- yeah. Leopold Trail and the Fleck Trail. <laughs> Because I gave a $50 donation. <laughs> yeah, it's a little more than that. <laughs> all right. So uh, do you all want to go look at this little bog down sure. the hill over here? Yeah, it sounds yeah. great. Steve, yeah. you have a little bit more? Yeah, a little bit more. Okay. I mentioned sexual reproduction earlier. So most bryozoans are hermaphroditic, meaning they have both male and female reproductive organs. Um, typically, an individual will not have both ovaries and testes mature at the same time. So eggs and sperm are either shed into the water where they fuse, or like in the majority of species, they capture free swimming sperm with their tentacles and fertilize and brood their eggs within their zoecium. So uh, the fertilized eggs then divide and then they develop into ciliated larvae that escape from the brood chamber and just swim away. Uh, Eventually they'll settle and uh, they'll go through this metamorphosis into the ancestrula. And now we're kind of coming full circle. Um, And that'll produce the new colony through asexual reproduction. So the freshwater class of bryozoans has a secondary asexual reproduction strategy. And this is actually the group of bryozoans that we see in New York. Um, So within their bodies, freshwater bryozoans can form these hard, round statoblasts. And these function kind of like seeds. Um, So during freezing or drought conditions, the colonies die, and the dissolving dead zooids uh, free the statoblasts, which can then disperse into the environment. Sounds like spores. Yeah, essentially, yeah. So they're just kind of releasing from the dead, decaying bryozoan bodies. Um, And when conditions are favorable, like in the spring, the statoblasts germinate and form a new zooid and create a new colony. (laughs) So so the very last thing I have is that, um, lastly, uh, bryozoans are preyed on by grazing organisms, such as sea urchins and fish. So there are things that do eat them. Um, and they're also subject to competition and overgrowth from sponges, algaes, and tourniquets. Tourniquets? Do you know what that is? No. I totally forgot what they were. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> that when you cut, cut off a limb? No. Nope. You... <laughs> I, I knew what a tourniquet was. J.G., do you know what a tourniquet is? I have no idea what a tourniquet is. <laughs> uh, you know what? I knew what they were a long time ago, and I was hoping that it would come to me when I, when I was reading through it. <laughs> Um, Just make it up. Yeah. <laughs> Tourniquet. You know, it's uh, an aquatic thing. Perfect. Related to bryozoans. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I mean, everything. We're related to bryozoans, I guess. <laughs> All right. So they don't see So just, to wrap everything up, bryozoans, uh, I usually try to end with this type of thing, is that um, do we have to worry about any type of conservation with them or anything like that? Um, they don't really seem to be in any danger, but it has been noted that their presence can be a sign of a healthy aquatic environment. Oh, okay. So um, that yeah. is definitely a positive thing. So if you're seeing bryzoans, things that either look like corals or gelatinous blobs, um, <laughs> it's probably a good sign. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, we'd say that about coral reefs too. You want to see healthy coral reefs. So Yeah, I'm wondering because how climate change is impacting coral across the world. I wonder. Right. You know, what, what kind of impact is it having on bryzoans? 
Yeah. yeah, and so now that we have a nice introduction, a nice background to bryozoans, um, if we ever want to take a topic closely related to bryozoans, like maybe if we talk about coral bleaching or something like that, I think this would be a really kind of good jumping off episode. And, and if we did that topic, we would probably bring stuff up from this episode as well. So, all right. Um, yeah, so that's all I have. Okay. All right, so JG, we got to say thank you for contacting us and bringing us out here. This has been a beautiful hike, and I definitely, we need to come back here. Yeah. Yeah. And I want permission to go on the rest of their properties. <laughs> I heard there's some good stuff out there. Talking about the land conservancy? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll take you. Yeah. Yeah, you can definitely go. And you should, you know, everyone listening, you should come out here sometime, too. You know, the trails are already open to the public. What we're trying to do is, is buy the land, so it's always that way. Um, and if you are able to donate, you know, that's, that's what we need right now. It's going to take the entire community to save this place, and, and it really is threatened, and there's not that much time left. Um, if people are interested in supporting this particular site or the Western New York Land Conservancy in general, where do they go? So you go to our website, wnylc.org from Western New York Land Conservancy. Um, it's easy to donate when you go on there. And if you just want to write a check, that's easy too. <laughs> PO Box 471, East Aurora, New York, 14052. All right, thanks. Mm-hmm. So Steve and I, what we usually do is we take 10% of our Patreon support we usually donate it to worthy environmental causes. We've been using Kiva, uh, but we were talking before and, and during the episode, uh, and we think that this would be a great project to offer support as well. So we're going to be using our recent Patreon support to make a donation to support saving the College Lodge Forest. That's great. Thank yeah. you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for doing what you do. Well, yeah. this is, I'm lucky to be able to do it, right? Hikes <laughs> in the forest for work. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> All right, so folks, uh, first and foremost, we want to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. Now, we appreciate every person that makes a financial donation to support the field guides, but every episode we like to give special notice to our top patrons. So thank you, Alyssa, the Hebranks, Dan, Diane, Jessica, Ken, Orange Julian, Rachel, Rich, Sean, Bob, Bruce, Esther, Gavin, Goose, Jeff, John, Kaylee, Kazes, Polywog, Rob, we named the dog Indy, and Crawdount. And we want to thank our newest Patreon supporters, and that is Bob, Kaylee, and Crawdount. Thank you for supporting the podcast. You make what Steve and I do possible, mm-hmm. and it allows us to do new and interesting things in the future. So thank you, folks. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned this last episode that we didn't know about it, but apparently there are iTunes reviews in other countries' versions of iTunes. Yeah. So um, I was kind of searching around to try to find, you know, various countries, and I kept coming up with countries that didn't have any reviews for us whatsoever. So I went with the easiest ones to start off with, and I think every episode we'll pick a new country or a couple countries <laughs> and just thank all the people that have given us reviews that we never even knew were giving us reviews. So, um, so first I want to just start with the U.K., so thank you, Coxie1278, Steph G1988. And then I'm also going to share some from Canada as well. So Kate from Ontario, thank you very much. Uh, Starman Stew, Sage Mert, Crawdance, Stina from Canada, Bestest Family, Jewel Ann, Dano4678, Upgrade No Work, The Reconologist, and Lucky Shackleton. Thank you guys so much. So that one you had trouble reading, was it that one? <gasps> yeah. So they not only reviewed us, they became a patron as well. Great, and we wouldn't even have known about the review. So thank you, Crawdon. Yeah. yeah. And we don't want to forget those people that reviewed us on the American iTunes page. 
So we want to thank Brendan QQQQ, Skunk Cabbage, Dave, Lori B2, Miss Spencer, bio teacher, very descriptive name, and Devaki Rose. So thank you, folks. We know a lot of people out there uh, aren't able to support us financially through Patreon or a PayPal donation. And if you're one of those people, then reviewing us on iTunes, your favorite podcatcher, leaving a review is incredibly important. It gets our podcast out in front of potential listeners, and it's really one of the best ways that you can help us out. So thank you to everyone who has taken the time to do that. And if you haven't, please consider it. We also want to thank Thomas Valley for making a recent PayPal donation, a one-time donation on our website, which is another way to support the podcast. Yeah, thank you guys so much. All right. Anything else? No, that's it. I think that's it. Thank you again, J.G. Thank you. Thanks for coming out here. Sure. And we haven't done this in a while. We want to remind everybody out there, get those kids outside, let them get muddy, let them get dirty, flip over rocks, and flip over logs. And I just want to remind people about what we said at the beginning of our episode today. We will list resources in the episode notes directing people to issues that deal with Black Lives Matter. Okay, thank you guys. See you next time. See you next time.